Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, January 9th, 2019. I get the feeling we're going to be listening to a few of these sermons because they are good. <laughs> Man, they are good. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And sadly, there is no shortage of really crazy things being said out there in God's name. And we take the time to open up God's word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching, that's put forward for consumption by the average evangelical, far from biblical, far from what God's Word says, there's a whole lot of deceiving going on out there, and we are warning people here and teaching them how to uh, to engage in sound biblical discernment, exegesis, and things of that sort. All right, so what we're going to do today, today is Wednesday, and uh, normally when I'm on track, uh, we uh, oftentimes have a light episode on Wednesday. That means that this, the, it's not that the message is light. No, it's actually oftentimes quite heavy. And uh, and so what we're going to be listening to is a sermon delivered by my my friend Phil Johnson. And the name of it is Guarding the Flock, and it's, uh, it's an exegesis of Acts 20, uh, verse 28, Paul's exhortation to the uh, elders of the church, uh, the churches in Ephesus as far as guarding the flock because of the ravenous wolves. And there, there's actually a few sermons that are kind of along, themed along these lines, which we might actually get into uh, in future episodes of Fighting for the Faith. But today, for sure, we'll be listening to this sermon, Guarding the Flock by Phil Johnson. And so let's go ahead and, you know, like get right to it. 
Here we go. All right, here in uh, Grace Life, some of my recent messages, I, I've been touching on themes like spiritual maturity and church leadership, ministry philosophy. I think the last time I spoke, we talked about ecclesiastical purity. These are the kinds of subjects that I've dealt with over the years at shepherds conferences or, or in other venues where I might be speaking to pastors. And I realize, of course, most of you are not pastors. You have no calling to become elders in the church. But I still want to deal with these things because these are issues and principles you need to know and you need to be familiar with. Evangelical Christianity is in crisis at the moment with lots of bad ideas, lots of evil influences vying for leverage in our churches. The evangelical movement would not be in this state if it weren't for failures in leadership, men and even some women, people who are neither called nor qualified to be pastors, have nevertheless arrogated that title for themselves, and they run churches as if they were circuses or rock concerts or, in some cases, big businesses. They're concerned about things like branding and cultural trends or opinion polls or demographics, the demographics of gender and race and age and whatever. And the gauge of success or failure uh, to some of these people is just one thing, attendance figures. While they ignore the clear instructions Scripture gives with regard to what the church is supposed to focus on, what our message to the world is supposed to be. You have heard me say many times before that I think the evangelical movement today is more in need of reformation than medieval Roman Catholicism was in Luther's time. And I do believe that the church today is a worse mess, both morally and doctrinally, than Roman Catholicism was then. And because some of the chief culprits in this ecclesiastical downgrade are the people who write the books and hold church leadership conferences and feed this evil obsession with marketing strategy and popularity contests, <clears throat> I think it's time for lay people, serious, sober-minded Christians, like I hope most of you are, to join our voices together with the relatively small number of Christian leaders who are still resistant to all the evangelical fads. Maybe you, more than anyone, uh, don't need to hear these messages because you go to Grace Church, and this is a theme here often, and that's true. But people go out from Grace Church all the time. There are too many people populating the pews of evangelical churches all over the country nowadays who are perfectly willing to gather to themselves a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. They turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. And so I want to continue to encourage you not to be that way. It was, <clears throat> I think, my friend Todd Friel who got me thinking about this subject just a few weeks ago. He was interviewing me for a project that he's doing, and he asked my thoughts about Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley is one of the chief architects of the current evangelical disaster. He, he caters to naive people with very little understanding of what the Bible says and what the church needs to be. And I realized there are thousands of church members today 
who grew up in youth groups where they were entertained and kept busy with activities but never actually taught from Scripture. And people like that desperately need to hear what the Bible says about church leadership and ministry philosophy. Otherwise, this problem is just going to be perpetuated forever. And so I want to explore those subjects with you over the next month and a half or so. We're going to do a series of messages on subjects like these. Let's start with a question. What are the core priorities of pastoral ministry? It's my conviction that the biblical answer to that question is seriously at odds with most of the answers you would hear from some of the leading gurus of church growth and Christian leadership theory today. And maybe that's a surprise to you. Uh, And so let me take a little time to describe the current evangelical landscape, and then we'll turn to the Apostle Paul for an answer to the question of what is the work a pastor ought to do? What, What should the work of a pastor look like, and what are the actual priorities of church ministry? Let's hear what the Apostle Paul has to say. But first, let me describe to you some of the things that are going on now. Too many church leaders in our generation have forgotten what the word pastor means. You know that pastor is an exact synonym for shepherd. That's the true meaning of the word. And the symbolism of sheep and shepherds is prominent in Scripture from start to finish. You begin to see that theme very early in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 27, verses 16 and 17 says, "...let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them." who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And that same theme then runs through to the very end of Scripture. In Revelation seven seventeen. Jesus is described as both lamb and shepherd, for the lamb in the midst of the throne shall be their shepherd. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? He's both a lamb, the lead lamb, and the shepherd of the sheep. But there are actually many in positions of great influence and leadership in the evangelical movement at this moment who think that we need to do away with the imagery of lambs and shepherds and exchange our role as tenders of the Lord's flock for some nobler kind of leadership. People say this. You hear this in some of the leading books about ministry philosophy. Some of the gurus of church leadership today think that we need to be, instead of shepherds, we need to be entrepreneurs or rock stars or top-level business managers or CEOs or whatever. One well-known church leader who lives not very far from here put the title futurist rather than pastor on his business card. Contemporary church leaders justify that agenda, of course, by an appeal to contextualization and cultural relevance. Our culture understands this. In fact, there was a famous interview with Andy Stanley in the spring 2006 issue of Leadership Magazine. So this is more than 10 years old, this goes back. And in that interview with Leadership Magazine, a Christian magazine on the subject of leadership, uh, Andy Stanley famously said that he thinks it's time to retire the idea of shepherding and replace it with the figure of a corporate CEO. That's what he said. He thinks shepherding is outdated. In fact, let me read you 
quotations from that article. So, you know, I'm not just misrepresenting what he said or exaggerating it. The interviewers asked, quote, what is distinctly spiritual about the kind of leadership you do? Andy Stanley replies, quote, there's nothing distinctly spiritual. One of the criticisms I get is your church is so corporate. He says, I read blogs all the time. Bloggers complain the pastor's like a CEO. And I say, okay, you're right. Now, why is that a bad model? And so the interviewer asked him, should we stop talking about pastors as shepherds? Andy Stanley says, again, quote, absolutely. That word needs to go away. Jesus talked about shepherds because there was one over there in a pasture he could point to. But to bring in that imagery today and say, Pastor, you're the shepherd of the flock, no. Andy Stanley says, I've never seen a flock. I've never spent five minutes with a shepherd. It was culturally relevant in the time of Jesus, but it's not culturally relevant anymore, unquote. And so the interviewer pressed him, isn't shepherd the biblical word for pastor? It doesn't the, the word pastor actually mean shepherd? Andy Stanley was insistent, quote, it's a first century word. If Jesus were here today, would he talk about shepherds? No. He would point to something that we all know and he'd say, yeah, I know that. And we'd say, yeah, I know what that is. Jesus told Peter, the fisherman, to feed my sheep. But he didn't say to the rest of them, go ye therefore into all the world and be shepherds and feed my sheep. By the time of the book of Acts, he says, the shepherd model is gone. Shepherding doesn't seem to be the emphasis, unquote. Now, that's about as wrong-headed as anything you will ever hear from an actual ordained minister. But it speaks volumes about Andy Stanley's philosophy of ministry, and this is by no means unique with him. I pick him out because he has the biggest church. He says the most about this stuff, but he's not the only one. Maybe he's more candid than most contemporary pastors might be, but the attitude Andy Stanley expresses in that interview is actually very common these days among Western evangelical church leaders. John MacArthur's been writing about this for 30 years. In practice, this idea that the the pastor is essentially the CEO of the church may actually be the dominant view now. We're CEOs, we're not shepherds. It's an especially popular idea among these young celebrity pastors with really fast-growing churches, and it's an idea that's spreading. Now, I realize because you go to Grace Church, you hear John MacArthur teach all the time, most of us don't think shepherding is an obsolete idea because, uh, in fact, every year our church sponsors the Shepherds Conference. But let's face it, if shepherding is the first image that comes to your mind when you think of the pastor's role, you are already way ahead of the average evangelical pastor in your own thinking about church ministry philosophy. Listen to the church growth experts or any number of young seminary graduates, not our graduates, but other seminaries, send out people all the time, young guys who aspire to be commanders-in-chief in the next generation of megachurches. They all want to have the huge, big megachurch. And for three decades or longer, virtually everyone on the cutting edge of postmodern ministry has been relentlessly replacing 
biblical language, with the jargon of the business world, and they have abandoned biblical leadership models in favor of contemporary corporate strategies. They see themselves as entrepreneurs and managers and futurists. Mix that with a craving for celebrity. I'm thinking of one guy planning to go into ministry who literally told me that he wants to become the Steve Jobs of the evangelical community. And there you have the profile of a dozen or more rising stars, people you've already probably heard of, rising stars in the world of hipster religion. Shepherding is the furthest thing from their minds. One of the most influential organizations in the church growth movement today is a group called Leadership Network. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they are very influential. Their influence is everywhere in the evangelical world, and they have an especially large presence on the web, online. Leadnet.org is their website, and they are devoted to a philosophy of leadership that is rooted in the writings of Peter Drucker, who's the famous author and management consultant uh, who was the head guru of the corporate world in America for 25 years or longer. He died a few years ago, but still very influential. And uh, Leadership Network is the, is the, uh, the sort of evangelical arm of the ministry or the, the leadership style that he started. And uh, according to the people of leadership.org, all who consider themselves evangelicals, according to them, Peter Drucker is the Jedi master of corporate leadership. And their website refers to him as their grand mentor. That's how they see him. He wrote several best-selling books on leadership and business management. He was best known for his theory of management by objective. That's what he called it, or as it might be nicknamed the purpose-driven corporation. Drucker died in 2005, but his influence has profoundly shaped the, the whole culture of American corporations, secular businesses, and evangelicals have been enthusiastically jumping on his bandwagon for probably close to 40 years now. Drucker called himself a social ecologist. And he also liked to refer to himself as a futurist. And somewhere along the line, he personally took a keen interest in church growth. He said that once, he said that megachurches, and he pointed out Saddleback and Willow Creek, he said churches like that constitute, these are his exact words, the most important social phenomenon in American culture. And in fact, Rick Warren and Bill Hybels both met personally with Peter Drucker and based their leadership styles on his business model. Rick Warren refers to Peter Drucker as his chief mentor. But Drucker was a European-born liberal Lutheran. His parents were Austrian, and by ethnicity they were Jewish, but they converted to Lutheranism, liberal Lutheranism, while European fascism was gaining power, and Drucker remained a liberal Lutheran all his life. He was intrigued in his later years by the phenomenon of church growth. But he, he wasn't an evangelical. He didn't believe in the authority of Scripture or the exclusivity of Christ or any other distinctly evangelical doctrine. There is a video online where Drucker is specifically asked about his personal faith, and he himself says, these are his exact words, I am not a born-again Christian. No, he says, and I don't claim to be. 
So he was a thoroughgoing pragmatist, a religious man, but denied that he was born again. He was not someone concerned with truth or sound doctrine, but pragmatic methods of church growth. And he began to encourage young, innovative, evangelical and quasi-evangelical pastors to adopt these ministry and marketing philosophies that he had observed in successful corporations. And he, he's the one who said, who sort of launched the idea that the pastor's role is basically the same as a corporate CEO, and that's how pastors should see themselves, he said. One of his close friends and maybe his most ardent admirer is a philanthropist from Dallas named Bob Buford. Bob Buford died just this past April, but he was the founding chairman of the Peter F. Drucker Foundation for Nonprofit Management. He was also <clears throat> one of the co-founders of Leadership Network, this evangelical organization. He and Fred Smith Sr. founded the organization Leadership, Man Leadership Network in order to influence evangelical pastors to adopt Peter Drucker's style of management, his business model. And so Peter Drucker's ideas about management philosophy are deeply embedded in Leadership Network's DNA. They've established the corporate model of pastoral leadership in the evangelical community. And in fact, this seems to have now become the dominant philosophy among today's evangelicals. You, you won't hear many evangelicals critiquing this view. By the way, Leadership Network is the same organization that about 20 years ago, maybe a little longer than that, drew together a group of young, radical, postmodern church leaders from the 1990s, men like Doug Padgett, Tony Jones, Spencer Burke, Mark Driscoll, and several others, who subsequently became, these young guys, became the leading figures in the emerging church movement. And that coalition totally fragmented within a decade or so because so many young guys with big egos and strong personalities were never able to see eye to eye or to work together harmoniously. And so the emerging church movement, we don't even talk about it anymore because as a movement it doesn't exist. But what all of those guys had in common and still do is the notion that if the church is going to flourish in these postmodern times, their idea was what's most essential is innovation. Starting at the top levels of church leadership, all of them believe the church needs to observe and adopt all of the same marketing and management strategies that make the largest successful, the largest corporations in America successful. And despite the demise of the emerging church coalition, Leadership Network is still to this day the founding organization, still going strong, still gaining influence, because their agenda is not driven by any theological credo or conviction. It's driven by a pragmatic and practical philosophical devotion to Peter Drucker's business model. They believe that's the recipe for church growth, regardless of the church's doctrinal position or denominational affiliation. And so that view has gradually become the conventional wisdom, and that's why so many young pastors today are obsessed with style and methodology, and they are far less concerned with matters of sound doctrine and the defense of the faith. And some of them, like Andy Stanley, are convinced that the biblical model of shepherding 
shepherding the flock of God, to them that's simply outdated and obsolete, something we need to just leave behind. So these are hard times for men with true shepherds' hearts. And I want to respond to Andy Stanley's claim that shepherding was merely a convenient, incidental metaphor that Jesus picked up one day in Galilee when he happened to look over there and there was a shepherd. Is it true, as Andy Stanley claims, that the language of shepherding and and shepherding as a model of leadership were already obsolete by the time the book of Acts was written? Is that true? Of course it's not. As I pointed out at the start, the language of shepherding permeates all of Scripture. You'll find it all the way to the very end in the book of Revelation. The Israelites were shepherds all the way back before Abraham's time. According to Genesis 46:34, that is why the Egyptians confined the Israelites to the land of Goshen, because it says, Genesis 46:34, because every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Andy Stanley's like those ancient Egyptians. David was working as a shepherd when he was chosen as the first person to sit on the throne that will one day belong to Jesus. Belongs to Jesus now. He just doesn't occupy it in the sense he will. And in fact, David's occupation as a shepherd is, I think, a major factor in the way God describes him, 1 Samuel 13, 14, as a man after God's own heart. Pastoral imagery, sheep and shepherding, constitute the whole theme of the most familiar and famous psalm of all, the 23rd Psalm, because God's heart is the heart of a shepherd. Psalm 80, verse 1, calls him the shepherd of Israel. Psalm 100, verse 3, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. There's so much repetition of this theme in the Old Testament that I I don't have time to read you all the cross-references. But let me encourage you to trace this theme through Scripture. You might be amazed at how pervasive this theme of shepherding is in the Bible. One of Jesus' great claims of deity came in John chapter 10, verse 11, when he said, I am the good shepherd. Peter echoes that in 1 Peter 2, 25, when he speaks of Jesus as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And there in, then in chapter 5, verse for that same epistle, he calls Jesus the chief shepherd. In Hebrews 13.9, Jesus is called the great shepherd of the sheep. So our Lord is the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. And notice, all of those verses were penned long after the events that are recorded in the book of Acts. All of those epistles came later. And that's not all. Peter gave the command... To every elder, every church leader, and and it applies to all of us in every generation, there is no legitimate way to contextualize this into oblivion. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4, and I'm just going to read it. You don't need to turn there. But notice, as I read, how many ways Peter's description of shepherding is actually antithetical to the idea of a celebrity CEO. This is 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, he says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow, fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you 
exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And, he adds, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Pretty amazing, right? I mean, that's contrary to what these guys today are saying. And I could go on, but I won't. It ought to be clear that shepherding as a model of spiritual leadership is a ubiquitous theme in Scripture. And it's the central theme on leadership in Scripture. And the shepherd's role tells us a lot about how leadership in the church is supposed to function. And that's what I want to explore with you this morning. And I want to home in on just a few verses in Acts chapter 20. So that was a long introduction. And you might have thought, he's never going to get around to a text. But here we are, Acts 20, starting in verse 21, and I, uh, 20, 29. And I, I chose this text because it's simple and poignant. It's, it's full of both practical and doctrinal wisdom. And it belies Andy Stanley's claim that the imagery of shepherding is already obsolete by the book of Acts. Because here is Acts 20, 28. I'll read it. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Now that, of course, is the key verse in the Apostle Paul's farewell message to the elders at the church in Ephesus. This came near the end of Paul's third and final missionary journey. This is, so this is a major turning point in Paul's ministry. His missionary work as a free man is just about over. And uh, he's on his way back to Jerusalem. The journey takes him close to Ephesus, uh, which is a city he knew well. And in fact, at the start of his third missionary journey, he had anchored his whole ministry in Ephesus. He lived there for three years. Verse 31, For three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Ephesus was by far the largest city in the whole region. In fact, it was bigger than Athens. But Paul is in a hurry to reach Jerusalem. And so, verse 16, he decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. He also knew that some of the biggest crowds of the year would be in Jerusalem at Pentecost, and he wanted to get there in time to preach to them and perhaps to see a response similar to what Peter had seen on that first Pentecost after Christ ascended to heaven. Maybe Paul was thinking about that. I certainly would have been. And if Paul was going to reach Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, he couldn't make a stop in Ephesus. He knew that. So while his ship is stopped at Miletus, verse 17, he summons the elders of the Ephesian church to make this overland journey of 30 miles from Ephesus to meet with him at Miletus. He wants to give the elders of that church one last apostolic charge. And so this is a vital passage. <clears throat> you know, we have lots of pastoral advice from Paul in his epistles to Timothy and Titus, but this, this section here, is the most compact, condensed set of pastoral marching orders from the Apostle Paul. This is the this charge to the Ephesian elders is only about 18 verses long, uh, 
so, 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 but it's so rich, it's so condensed with meaning that there's no way even in a single hour to do a full exposition of Paul's whole message to the Ephesian elders. But I want to read the whole message without much comment, and then we're going to zoom in and look closely at the central command, which you see in verse 28. So here's the message to the elders of Ephesus, starting in verse 18. He said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from that first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, that's all prelude and personal testimony. Here comes the charge to these men. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And now he closes with more words of testimony and, and a final quotation from the teaching of Jesus, verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way... We must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. All right, we're going to stop right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, when we come back, we'll hear the balance of this exegetical sermon on Acts 20.28 about guarding the flock of God by Bill Johnson. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. 
heard enough of the sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. It's... Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's emergence ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Padgett in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's 
Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at Gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that uh, false teachers are a real problem that Scripture warns us about, because it does. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says, Donate. The other says, Join our crew. The other says, Become a patron. Uh, when you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here is the balance of today's message by Phil Johnson titled Guarding the Flock. Here we go. Now, I want to focus on just a few verses, starting with verse 28. Remember, these guys are from Ephesus. It's a city of commerce and business. Ephesus was a major hub for several of the various trade routes that crisscrossed the Roman world. This was the most cosmopolitan city in the Mediterranean region. The parallel today would be like going to Chicago to preach in in the loop downtown. This was a sophisticated, urbane, cultured society. Shepherds did not mingle freely in Ephesian culture. A shepherd would have lived on the far out fringe of a culture like that. So if Paul had wanted to contextualize the leadership model, he might have compared church leaders to sea captains or trade merchants or Roman centurions or something else that might be more personally familiar to these men than a shepherd. But he speaks to them as shepherds, and he solemnly commands them to fulfill the role of faithful herdsmen 
under-shepherds who are accountable to the great shepherd for the care and feeding of the flock, which he purchased with his own blood, he says. Now, Paul believes that this will be his last ever face-to-face encounter with these particular elders. Verse 25, none of you will see my face again. He doesn't expect to come back to Ephesus, although it seems he did make it back there at least once because some 12 or, or so years after Acts 20, he writes in 2 Timothy 4.12 that he had left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. So he did make it back, at least to Miletus, which is the very place where he had this farewell meeting with these Ephesian elders. But this could have been the last time he saw this generation of elders face to face. And so he seizes the opportunity to give them one final exhortation about their duty as shepherds. He has a very short time to give them one last set of instructions, and this is what he says. So note the substance of his message well, and compare this farewell message with the average church leadership conference today. And notice, first of all, what's missing He does not talk to them about management or marketing strategy. He doesn't encourage them to see themselves as change agents tasked with reshaping the culture of Ephesus. He doesn't encourage them to be innovators or vision casters or devisers of novel programs for every new generation in the church. He doesn't raise the issue of social justice or or try to rally them against human trafficking, which is a big issue in those parts of the world. He doesn't deal with any of the other things that are the fad issues today. He's not concerned with whether they're hip enough or savvy enough to impress the secular intelligentsia. He's not concerned with any of the themes that dominate most of today's manuals on pastoral leadership. He certainly does not encourage them to see themselves as as managers rather than ministers or CEOs rather than servants. And in fact, he reminds them that they are shepherds caring for a flock that doesn't even belong to them. The church is God's flock, purchased by him with his own blood. This, by the way, is a powerful affirmation of the deity of Christ. But what I want to focus on here is not the doctrine that's implicit in Paul's words, but the explicit imperative that constitutes the heart of Paul's charge to these elders. He urges them to pay careful attention, or in the King James language, take heed to the duties of their pastoral calling. Specifically, there are three things he wants them to pay close attention to. Themselves, the sheep... And the wolves. So let's consider each of those one at a time. First, verse 20. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. He puts this first in order. And it's a bit of a jolt because if you're thinking about the role of a shepherd, this isn't something that would normally quickly spring to mind. The shepherd's job is to watch out for the sheep, not to be absorbed in himself. John 10, verse 11 again. Jesus said, the good shepherd lays down his life. For the sheep. So properly understood, shepherding is a role of self-sacrifice, not self-aggrandizement. And that's true also of pastoral ministry. If you understand it properly, it's a role of sacrifice, not 
self-serving. It's supposed to be about the sheep. It's not an ego trip for the shepherd. But Paul is not telling these men to look out for their own self-interests or to become self-absorbed. That's not what he means when he says, watch out for yourselves. What he has in mind here is something far different. And he makes clear what he means in verse 30 when he uses the expression, yourselves, once more, verse 30, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's a jolt also, isn't it? Paul understood that some of the worst attacks on the truth come from within the community of professing believers. That's always been true in the church, by the way. Even men who rise to positions of trust and prominence are capable of defection and apostasy, heresy, betrayal, and sometimes even gross sin. That's the lesson of Judas's life, right? Sometimes those who profess to believe actually harbor secret sins and unbelief that belies their profession of faith. Seemingly good and gifted men sometimes fall away and lead others astray. And that's a thousand times more destructive than any assault on our faith from a rank unbeliever. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. That's 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15. And don't kid yourself, if this was a problem in Paul's time, it is likewise a huge problem today. It has happened again and again throughout church history. And it's still happening. Just because a guy gets a book published by a supposedly reputable evangelical publisher or, or he manages to win the imprimatur of some leading evangelical figure, it doesn't mean you can suspend the faculty of discernment. Just looking back over the past half decade, I could name a half dozen or more best-selling authors with books published by well-known Christian publishers who are nevertheless totally apostate. And Paul is explicitly warning here that such things do happen and we need to be on guard. People don't like this, you know. You criticize somebody's favorite evangelical hero, point out that he's wrong and unbiblical in some point. You can even prove the point and people don't want to hear it. But Paul's words here have a double thrust. This command is also an exact parallel to the admonition Paul gave in 1 Timothy 4.16, where he says to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So that's a parallel to this. What he's saying here is an exhortation to engage in frequent and careful self-examination. He's telling These elders, if you think you are immune from falling, if you think you're not susceptible to the lure of sin and temptation, then you're in grave danger. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And I love that he tells Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. That's a difficult balance that we all have to maintain. It's easy to become so preoccupied with sound doctrine that we develop a purely academic approach to 
theology. We begin to let practical matters slide, and then we salve our consciences by congratulating ourselves on how doctrinally sound and discerning we are. And that's a deadly self-deception. The opposite is true as well. A concern for practical holiness can become a kind of legalistic piety, a a mechanical religion that's whitewashed and clean-looking on the outside, but it's devoid of truth and genuine faith at the point where it matters the most. We have to cultivate a balance. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Pursue both holiness and sound doctrine. And again, this is a call to constant self-examination, but it's also a plea for accountability to one another. Notice, Paul is speaking to a plurality of elders here. This is a young church in a pagan culture, and I'm sure it was no simple matter for the church at Ephesus to find qualified elders. I think that's why Paul stayed so long and did so much teaching in Ephesus. Acts 19.9 says that when opposition arose in the synagogue at Ephesus, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, and he reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. In other words, he moved his ministry to a lecture hall, and I have no doubt that one of the key reasons for the daily classes, every day he's in their teaching, is because... Paul was training men to fill the the office of elders in the church. It's not just one guy calling the shots like a tin-horn potentate, but it's a plurality of men who were well-versed in the Word of God and sound doctrine. And it's still a challenge today in any church to assemble a group of men, like-minded men, well-schooled in doctrine, to lead the church. But that's the biblical model. And he counsels them to hold one another accountable. Pay careful attention to yourselves, plural. Stir up one another to love and good works. Keep one another faithful in the Word of God. Encourage one another in holiness. Watch out for yourselves. People talk a lot about accountability these days, but let's be honest. Real accountability in the church is a pretty rare commodity. I'm not talking about denominational structure. I spent my adolescent years going to a church in a liberal denomination with a large international hierarchy, and I could see that it, even as a young adolescent, I could see that the whole denomination was rife with politics and sectarian shenanigans. Loading the hierarchy with bishops uh, doesn't guarantee any kind of biblical accountability. That, it's a, this is not a prescription for episcopacy is what I'm saying. But it's a call for personal accountability. This is difficult in our culture because it's deemed uncharitable and impolite to show any concern for the soundness of someone else's doctrine or their life. The person who raises a concern is more likely to get scolded by the mavens of political correctness than the guy who's actually teaching heresy. It's true. You see this on the Internet all the time. The object of scorn usually are not the people teaching heresy, but the people who are calling it out. It's also considered rude or meddlesome to 
to inquire how a fellow Christian is doing spiritually. You, you can argue passionately with your friends about sports or music or politics or almost anything else you're interested in, but don't get serious about spiritual things, even with a fellow Christian, because that's supposed to be none of your business. In a culture like ours, accountability becomes nearly impossible. But this is actually the first duty Paul names for elders of the church as the duly appointed overseers of the flock of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves. In other words, watch out for one another and and carefully maintain sanctification in your own private thoughts and behavior. But hold one another accountable. You're not the CEO or the head of the church if you're an elder. Christ is. And if you're functioning properly in the role you've been called to as an elder, you're a part of a team of under-shepherds, and it's your duty to keep one another accountable. Pay careful attention to yourselves. And secondly, number two, pay careful attention to all the flock. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Elders are custodians, they're caretakers, and and they're guardians. They are stewards of a flock that belongs to God. That's their primary duty. It's not about vision casting or personality cult building. Again, this is the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It's not your church, and the people are not there to serve you, but vice versa, if you're a pastor or an elder. Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. That's 1 Peter 5 again, verses 2 and 3. Notice, a CEO directs, he manages, he presides over his business. A shepherd leads and feeds and mends and guards the flock. For a CEO to be effective, he has to capture and keep the attention of his subordinates, and he has to persuade them to fulfill his vision. For a shepherd to be effective, he has to pay attention to the flock and serve them and care for them. John 10, verse 11 again, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is a call to a totally self-sacrificial ministry of service and tender care. A CEO leads by issuing mandates and giving orders. A shepherd leads by example through humble service and ministry to his sheep. The CEO is the boss. He is, by definition, the master of his company. A shepherd is a caretaker and minister to the sheep. Pastors are expressly forbidden here to lord it over the people in their care. Matthew 20, Jesus said this. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I wish we had time to look at the various tasks that 
constitute the actual daily routine of a literal shepherd. I I named them a minute ago. The shepherd leads and he feeds and he mends and he guards his flock. He, He chases them down. He brings them back when they wander. He frequently has to clean the muck off of them. Sheep are messy animals and the muck gets deeply embedded in all that wool. And it's not a nice task to have to clean it off. But one of the chief duties in shepherding is to make sure that the sheep are properly and sufficiently fed and watered and cared for. The pulpits of American churches are overrun with hireling shepherds who are starving their flocks by withholding the nutrition they need. They load them up instead with the spiritual equivalent of cotton candy and pop rocks and Kool-Aid. Which is, by the way, an interesting combination if you want to. <clears throat> but you don't have to feed your sheep, you know, spiritual strychnine in order to poison them. You actually accomplish the same result, perhaps a little more slowly, by just feeding them nothing but marshmallows. Today's average evangelical is overdosed on entertainment and cultural fads and secular politics and other kinds of cheap nonsense. People are starved for good biblical teaching. Don't be complicit if you're in a position of leadership. And this is true even of you moms with your children. Don't be complicit in withholding their actual needs while you cater to their felt needs. And don't water down the milk of God's Word while you deliberately avoid the meaty parts, no matter how stylish it may seem to do that. But pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. Here's duty number three, verses 29 through 31. Wolves will come, therefore be alert. Pay attention to the wolves. Keep a close watch out for wolves. I'm absolutely amazed and appalled at the number of church leaders, I'm talking about famous men in in positions of prominence who seem to think that this principle was just fine for the apostolic era or the Protestant Reformation or, or perhaps a few periods in between here and there, but they bristle when anyone suggests that this is a vital duty today. You know, that's not charitable. You're just being a fundamentalist. Let's face it. Contending for the faith, being on guard against wolves in sheep's clothing is not the most popular aspect of the pastor's duty, but it is a duty nonetheless. It's not optional. Jesus said, any shepherd who sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees or or otherwise lets wolves have their way with the flock, that man is a hireling who doesn't care for the sheep. It's not loving, it's not charitable to avoid any confrontation with the wolves. Just the opposite. That's the most unloving thing a shepherd could ever do. But I don't feel called to do that. That's not my spiritual gift. Well, then you're not called to be a shepherd. Get out of the ministry. It's positively sinful to ignore spiritual wolves and pretend that they don't really pose any danger. In the realm of spiritual warfare, in which really all of us are called to minister today, wolves are not scarce. They certainly aren't obsolete. Paul was absolutely positive that this would become a major issue in Ephesus, verse 29. I know, he says... But after my departure, fierce fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
It was a certainty that the wolves would come, and they would not spare the flock. And so the clear implication is they themselves, the wolves themselves, should not be spared. Don't go easy on the wolves. You can't persuade a wolf to become a vegetarian by engaging it in collegial dialogue. A shepherd must keep the wolves out of the fold and away from the sheep, and sometimes that means going on the attack. It seems to me that in this message to the Ephesian elders, the threat of wolves was the one aspect of the shepherd's duty that was most on Paul's mind and heart. This is the reason he stopped and and felt he had to talk to these guys. You, You feel a sense of urgency, especially when he tells them, verse 30, "...from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things." You know, these guys must have felt like those 11 faithful disciples in the upper room looking around and going, is it I? I wonder what Paul knew and, and whether this was knowledge that was given to him prophetically or perhaps he perceived some sinister potential in one or more of the Ephesian elders. But the fact is, his prophecy definitely came true, and you see evidence of that in Paul's epistles to Timothy. That whole first chapter of 1 Timothy is devoted to the topic of wolves in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 3, or 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 and 4. I urged you, he says, to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So you had someone there who believed he could improve on apostolic teaching by supplementing Paul's doctrine with some kind of speculation that apparently was based on genealogies. You know, I've actually known people who think they've found some kind of hidden meaning in the genealogies of Scripture. We've had a few of them from time to time here in Grace Life. Not speaking here, but, you know, people... They sit on the periphery usually, and they won't talk about doctrine with me, but they'll pick out vulnerable and fragile people in our midst. They they have a nose for that, and they fill other people's minds with lots of confusing speculation and arcane doctrines, and that turns people's attention away from the gospel. It's dangerous. And in Ephesus, one of these guys was Hymenaeus. I have a strong suspicion he may have once been an elder or a person of influence in the Ephesian assembly. Perhaps he's the very person Paul was referring to, predicting about in Acts 20, because his teaching seemed to have a very long reach, and it confused a lot of people, like a lot of these types. Hymenaeus is usually seen in the New Testament with a sidekick. In 1 Timothy 1.20, it's Hymenaeus and Alexander. In 2 Timothy 2.17, it's Hymenaeus and Philetus. And Paul is not the least bit delicate or diplomatic or soft-spoken about these guys. He says of Hymenaeus and Alexander that they have made shipwreck of their faith. And he says, I've handed them over to Satan that they learn not to blaspheme. You know, that's not very tolerant. But when a shepherd responsible for the oversight of the Lord's flock encounters a wolf, tolerance is a sin. We don't know much about Hymenaeus or his false doctrine, but in 2 Timothy 2, verse 17, 
Paul says it spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus was teaching that the resurrection has already happened. He's talking about the resurrection of the saints. And so apparently Hymenaeus was what we call today a full preterist. And Paul didn't shrink from naming him and, in effect, summarily excommunicating him. He handed him over to Satan. One thing Paul would not have done would be to invite a man like that to a conference so that he could dialogue about his views in front of an audience of undiscerning sheep. Wouldn't have happened. There's an important lesson here. The gospel's most dangerous earthly adversaries are not usually raving atheists who stand outside the door shouting threats and insults. People like that really don't make me nervous. The most dangerous people are church leaders who cultivate a gentle, friendly, pious demeanor, but they hack away at the foundations of the faith under the guise of keeping in step with a changing world. No Christian should naively imagine that heresy is always conspicuous or that every purveyor of theological mischief is going to lay out his agenda in plain and honest terms. They don't do that. Wolves almost always come in sheep's clothing, and that's that's what the faithful shepherd is supposed to be on guard for. So what's the large lesson in all of this? Well, shepherding is hard and sometimes dirty work. And it calls for humble, faithful, devoted servants, not hirelings. It's practically the polar opposite kind of vocation from that of a CEO in the business and commerce world. It's not the same thing. Those who crave the secular world's admiration, men who love power and popularity and attention, anyone looking for an easy, problem-free career really ought to seek a job somewhere else. Hipsters, you know, those young guys who are desperate to be thought cool and stylish, they aren't fit for the task. Hypesters, you know, the the carnival barkers and political agitators and men seeking celebrity status, they aren't suited for shepherding either. And hucksters, the greedy, self-aggrandizing peddlers of snake oil, they aren't called to this role. But it seems to me like the church, the visible church today, is full of hipsters and hypsters and hucksters. Doesn't it seem like that to you? And they're all attracted to positions of church leadership for all the wrong reasons. They run with the wolves because wolfishness is in their DNA. And we need to chase them away from the church. It's time for real shepherds to step up and fulfill their, their calling. This is simple, basic stuff. I I hope it's familiar to you. And I know it's simple and basic. If you think I should be promoting some innovative, highly advanced new program for reimagining church ministry in a post-postmodern culture, I'm sorry to disappoint. But one of the great fallacies in the church today is the notion that church leadership and ministry philosophies are some kind of advanced science, and that unless you're some kind of spiritual polymath with Ivy League expertise and everything from art to psychiatry, you're not really equipped to be a pastor. That's nonsense. And the self-styled experts who just want to keep you, frankly, buying their books and coming to their seminars until you get the absolute newest ideas down pat, don't pay attention to people like that. 
the biblical imagery of church leadership as shepherding decisively debunks all of that. I'd frankly like to see most of the evangelical church growth gurus and opinion poll takers and masters of innovation, I'd like to see them all get real jobs and stop troubling the people of God. The task of the shepherd is not complex, but it's not effortless either. Elders in the church are called to lead the church by example, to feed and nourish the flock with a steady, rich diet of God's Word, to recover lambs who wander, to bind up those who hurt, to be on guard and ready to resist the ravenous wolves, and they will attack. And if God calls you to any position of church leadership, above all, lovingly tend the sheep, because they aren't your flock and it's not your church. We're merely stewards of Christ, and it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for such clarity in your word. We confess that we are weak and unworthy, and yet pride and sinful ambition well up so easily in our hearts. We thank you for the true shepherds that this church has been given, men with shepherds' hearts. May they be faithful, and may we follow their example as we serve the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus, in a manner that exalts him and not ourselves. Conform us to his likeness, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.